This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast, and I am your host for this week, Paul Jaisley, filling in for the incredible Mike Rappin. But I'm not alone. I'm joined by two of my favorite people to talk about comic books with, Nick White. Hey. And Kate Lamphere. Hi. Uh, well, we're back with another episode this week, and it's an exciting topic, one that I think we have a lot more to say than I think we might assume, if that makes sense. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute. Let's start off with the most important question we could ever ask each other. How have you been? What comics have you read? Let's start with you, Kate. I've been good. I went through and purged my two-read pile, or my two-read mountain, I should say. <laughs> I didn't yeah. have space for it along with the Christmas tree because they take up the same place <laughs> in my apartment. <laughs> okay. okay. So I went through and I put away all of the unread volumes and I basically gave all of Brian's comics back to him, <laughs> which was a very large stack of Mighty Thor and a whole bunch of mini series and number ones that I was interested in and haven't read for possibly four years. So, oh. <laughs> so now it's just my unread comics. <laughs> so we'll see uh, how long that takes me. Probably another four years to read all of them. Um, <laughs> recent <laughs> um, recently, I read Sweetness and Lightning, Volume 1. And referring back to the giant pile of unread comics that I own, I got this out of the library. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Just one of the reasons I haven't read the ones I own. Of course. Um, <clears throat> this book is by Guido Amagakure, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's a manga about a young man who's raising his very young daughter. Um, the man's wife died fairly recently in the story. And the daughter is super into delicious food. But this guy doesn't know how to cook. So he feels really bad about constantly taking her out to eat or getting frozen meals. And this young girl meets a young woman at a park, and the young woman invites them back to the, to her mother's restaurant. Only it turns out that the mother is like semi-famous and never around, and the restaurant isn't ever really open, but it's always stocked. It's very what? Uh, unexplained <laughs> in oh, that way. Okay. Um, but the young woman and the and the daughter end up becoming pretty close friends, and it turns out that the man the father is some kind of teacher and he's this girl's teacher so if i continue on with issue number two i'm wondering if it's going to get like awkward between the woman and the man Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it seems like she likes him a a little bit so i didn't really like that part like i was happy with this new friendship and all of these food images (laughs) (laughs) but it was a very cute story um and the artist did a really good job making the food look delicious like the expressions on especially the daughter's face is like i had to go and find something to eat immediately and if i continue with volume number two i'm gonna have to get like some carrots or something so the things that i find to eat aren't like chocolate or (laughs) three sleeves of crackers (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and luckily there are recipes for everything that they make oh in the back God. of the book. And of it's course. it's mostly Asian dishes or it's all Asian dishes. So I'm going to have to go to like an Asian food store to find some of these things, but it's probably going to happen. <laughs> that sounds very appealing. Like I, I love the idea of a cooking manga. I'm sure there's this other story that going on, but the most important part is like, let's get some new recipes and look at some delicious food. Like that's, yeah, that sounds very appealing. Yeah. I think this might be a show on Crunchyroll too. Oh, okay. Oh, hmm. I don't know. I've never been, I've never had an account on that website, but no. maybe I'll get one. <laughs> I love how this book just sort of like turns the corner and it's like, Hey Kate, like, how do you feel about, I don't know, uh, feelings in this book. And Kate's like, no, yeah. thank you, please. No, thank yep. you. <laughs> I'll stick to the he food. Moves ramen recipes. Yeah. I don't. I don't need romance. Yep. There's enough romance in comics. I cannot just have <laughs> and some recipes in this one. <laughs> that sounds great. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. What about you, Nick? What have you been reading? Uh, well, I've been pretty busy lately. We've been relocating uh, my grandmother to live uh, closer to my family. Uh, she was in Holland, and we moved her a bit closer, so that's taken up uh, 
Well, I think I think most people can relate. It's one of those things that, like, even if you plan and you organize and you think that you've structured everything out and whatnot, uh, it's one of those things that will ultimately unfurl into something massively bigger than whatever, regardless of however much you planned. It's just something that's going to be bigger than whatever you planned for. So mm-hmm. that's made up a lot of the last couple of days. But I have found time for some reading. Um, I've been reading Hellboy Omnibus 2, while at the same time BPRD Omnibus 1. Uh, These are both largely written uh, by Mike Mignola. In terms of Hellboy, he's largely drawing most of this volume. Uh, In terms of BPRD, I don't think he's drawing any of it. Dave Stewart, of course, is pretty much doing colors on all of it. Um, And it's one of those situations where it's like, look, I, I know most of us didn't, like, read we didn't get in on the ground floor when hellboy was coming out like 1994 or whatever you know none of us have first editions or whatever none of us are a uh, an hbog as i've coined the term i think i've just ultimately <laughs> sure. destroyed you know whatever hipness any of those terms had i guess um and so we've been left trying to read it via trades and omnibuses and and, and sometimes like, if we're really dumb, we'll ignore the fact that this content has been curated for us, and we'll just scour the internet for proper reading order lists because we're we're stupid, or I'm stupid. Uh, and, 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 and ultimately, I, I decided that what I wanted to do was juggle Hellboy and BPRD and read them in the order they came out uh, so that... Um, you know, you're bouncing back and forth in a way that doesn't get confusing and I guess ultimately feels meaningful. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and, and because ultimately BPRD kicks off when Hellboy leaves the BPRD because like that's like rule number 37 of superhero books. If you if you join a superhero team, you have to quit it. That's just, right. uh, of course. you know, them's the rules. Yeah. Um, and so it, it just became a huge mess because with these omnibuses, they're not really putting everything in in release order because with a lot of these like small little like eight page or 10 page stories that Mike Mignola did and his editors are like, I don't know where to fucking put this thing. They're like, we're just going to throw it aside. And when, when we have enough of these things, we're going to do a short story collection, right? Um, mm-hmm. Except that sort of messes up release order and sometimes messes up canon anyway um the the point is that i made things massively too hard for myself because this is like hellboy so it really doesn't matter it's it's ultimately like opening up your package of m&ms and sorting them out by color i mean you've accomplished something and maybe you feel (laughs) like you've brought order to a universe but it's meaningless like that's that's how i feel (laughs) about what i've done with my free time so um, I think, yeah, I think that's one of the big hurdles I know I've had with getting into Hellboy is that not knowing the order to read it, but also I feel like that's not that important because right, that's the, the paradox. Appeal, right, isn't the major appeal of Hellboy aesthetic mainly? Like Mike Mignola's art is the biggest oh, appeal. Sure, of the yeah. whole book. I mean, yeah. the writing is. I think the untold secret about Hellboy is that honestly, Mike Mignola is a massively better author than I think most people would think. Right. That's okay. sort of this the big secret for me. But um, yeah, it's kind of a mess. And if you're reading with omnibuses, then it becomes an even bigger mess. So um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I did read a short story in it that I did really enjoy called The Killer in My Skull, written by Mignola, drawn by Matthew Dow Smith, inks by Ryan Sook, colors by Dave Stewart. So it's a pretty mm-hmm. big all-star dream team there. Yeah. Um, and it's the introduction to Lobster Johnson, one of his characters, and this sort of illustrates how big of a mess this is. So it's an intro to Lobster Johnson, but it's ultimately a backup story within a Hellboy issue that got collected in a BPRD short story trade and then in a BPRD, PP, BPRD omnibus. So <laughs> good luck sorting this stuff out. It was a fun little story. It's about Lobster Johnson trying to figure out why people are being killed in their own homes um, by their furniture. Okay. <laughs> and it made me think of the Lonely Island song YOLO, uh, which, and I quote the lyrics, uh, two words about furniture killing machines. So, <laughs> um, okay. I, it was fun. It was fun. But Hellboy is <laughs> TLDR. Hellboy is a mess. It's a great book. They're both great books, but it's a mess, but only if you 
make it one i guess just just read the book <laughs> okay. people just read the book don't go on the internet yeah. don't go find another book don't go find people's streamlined <laughs> reading lists or don't go to howtoread.com or whatever it's called just 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 read the book okay i think no i, I think that's good i think that's something that as a lot of people don't take advantage of the idea of just diving headfirst into a universe or a series and just kind of fighting your way through it so to speak oh yeah everyone's like, got to plan things out you know they have yeah. to have their roadmap and yeah it's 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 a what do they call that uh fomo fear of missing out or whatever you right. know yeah everyone's mm-hmm. worried about that uh beyond that i also read lazarus x plus 66 uh this is the lazarus collection that sort of i think st- stemmed from the idea that following the 2016 election which uh however you feel about politics whatever just know that i think it really shattered greg rucka to the core if i recall correctly Mm -hmm. and he's like i can't really do lazarus right now i want to step back a little bit uh but i still kind of want to do something so he co-wrote all six of these uh issues uh each one focusing on a singular character or a pair of characters uh from lazarus that perhaps are a little bit more peripheral and he brought in a team of artists, uh, one for each issue, to draw them. So we had Steve Lieber, who did The Fix, Mac Chatter from Briggsland, Justin Greenwood from The Fuse, Aletha Martinez from World of Wakanda, I'm going to botch this one, uh, Bill Keys Evely uh, from Wonder Woman, God, she's so amazing, uh, and Tristan Jones, who did Alien Defiance. Um, and I thought it was a really perfectly executed um attempt to kind of give a nice glimpse into these different characters each of which really wouldn't have merited a full miniseries on their own but to get 22 or 26 pages uh and just get a little glimpse into the world uh was i i found really worthwhile and what i thought was the perfect compromise is that i think with something like this the skeptic in me is bound to think okay this is to tide us over it's not going to really have any forward momentum basically there aren't going to be any stakes with this you know what i mean like nothing's going to really be put on the line this is like this is the piece of bread you eat while you're waiting for dinner to roll around right mm-hmm. um or, or cheese it's or whatever the package of m&ms i mentioned <laughs> earlier I, I don't whatever it is for it, you 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 do you um and uh, But there's actually some real forward progress in this. It follows up directly where Volume 5, Cole, picked off, picked, uh, ended, and it offers up some really, it answers some lingering questions, and it asks some in turn. Um, if I had to just briefly say, like, what my two favorite stories were, I would probably say um, Casey Solomon's story. Um, she's a soldier that was nominated for dagger training. Dagger is basically elite forces of the Carlisle family. It follows her going through dagger training. That was drawn by Lieber. Uh, the other one I would definitely say would be Mac Chatter's issue, where he talks about Joaquim uh, Moray of the Moray family, who used to be allied with the Carlisles. But I, I don't want to say too much. Some really bad stuff went down at the end of Volume 5. So... Um, those are some things I read, and I would definitely recommend both a lot, especially if you love Lazarus. Get on this book. If you thought this was a stopgap or filler or irrelevant, it's not. It's it's really, really solid, and it's an interesting do you, experiment. Do you think that this could be read separately, like if, I'm, if I've never read Lazarus before? Oh no! Oh no! Definitely okay. not! Oh, definitely not! Let me be. Okay. <laughs> let me be very clear. Don't touch this book if you haven't read Lazarus. And allow me to be more specific. Don't read this book if you're not through volume five of Lazarus. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Some oh, more library so. books for me in my future. <laughs> oh, Lazarus is so good. Read it. Read it. It's, I think it's I so did fantastic. read some of it. I think yeah. I have read a few issues. Okay. That sounds good. What about what about you, Paul? Uh, uh, yeah, I've, I've been good. I have, uh, like Kate, uh, been ignoring my to-read pile and instead gone to the library to get some books, uh, specifically the digital library. I've used the Hoopla app to read a bunch of stuff this past week. Um, some of it good, some of it not, not so good. So um, let's start <laughs> with the good stuff. I, I, finally, I finally read the Flintstones series that DC did for the past couple of years, um, written by Mark Russell with art by Steve Pugh. That was surprisingly good. I mean, I have no, uh, 
nostalgia for the Flintstones. I mean, that predates even me, and I'm pretty old, but Flintstones <laughs> is even older than me. Um, I remember seeing the movies in the theater, maybe. That's kind of the only experience I really have with the Flintstones. Um, but what's nice is that this book also doesn't have any nostalgia for the characters, really. Instead, it uses the characters, that modern Stone Age family of the Flintstones, to do a very smart social satire of the current world that we live in, you know, contemporary politics, consumer culture, religion, it kind of hits on all those. And it's pretty scathing. Like I'm, I'm surprised just how much leeway DC and Hanna-Barbera gave Mark Russell to go with this stuff. You know, there's yeah, a, oh, issue. totally. Like I was shocked with, with okay. the, uh, it was, it was the whole Hanna-Barbera thing seems like completely hands off for yeah. this book and for others. It's like just, do whatever you want. I mean, if, if Barney Rubble shows up in it, great. I mean, you've fulfilled our, <laughs> our end of the bargain then. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's what's kind of great about it is that if, if you're expecting it to be kind of a hokey throwback series, it's not. Like, it's, it is a very smart comic book. Mark Russell's a very funny writer, and he's a very smart writer. And I think he does some interesting stuff with this book, and it does, never feels heavy-handed. Like, it's not him making political points, but it, right. there's enough of that to make it interesting. It's not like, a polemic. Issue, yeah, there's one issue where there's a group of people living in bedrock who are opposed to uh, monogamy because it's unnatural because before monogamy, before marriage, everyone just went to the sex cave and procreated there. You know, there wasn't an idea of marriage. And then, so of course, Wilma and Fred are married. So they go to a couple's retreat, a marriage counseling you know, thing. And that gets broken into by the protesters. Um, there's also two characters named Adam and Steve that want to get married. And the guy who's running, the marriage, uh, you know, like couples retreat says, oh, no, no, that's not right. I didn't sign up for that. You know, of course, then uh, Fred Flintstone has to talk him down and say, look, no, that's just as valid as any other marriage. You know, it's just two people that care for each other. And that's it's a nice story about monogamy and marriage. But it, it is a very like, you know, satirical look at the at the topic, you know, and the uh, issues surrounding it. So and there's a whole there's a bunch of issues about religion and like the church tries to invent new gods for them to worship and each one fails. <laughs> you know they're worshiping animals you know it's animism and they're like oh well how about an invisible god oh what's his name oh i don't know let's call him gerald so there's a recurring thing where characters are saying holy gerald and stuff so <laughs> it's a very funny book the artwork is actually really good in it um so i highly recommend this if you're skeptical about being a sort of topical and funny flintstones book it really is so i, I highly recommend it uh, the other book I read, which I wasn't quite as thrilled about, was the uh, Batman White Knight miniseries by Sean Murphy. Um, this is an eight-issue miniseries that Sean Murphy did for DC. This is one of their first, you know, the, the DC Black Label books, the imprint that they're doing, which is more sort of, quote-unquote, adult takes on the characters. Edgy. It's too edgy for yeah. me, probably. <laughs> exactly. You're not, you're not cool enough. Must not be, must enough be an this. eight on the edgy scale to pick up this book, <laughs> yeah. Um, there are some interesting ideas in this book. So basically the premise is that uh, the Joker in this book, who is actually Jack Napier, who's become the Joker, they go with the the uh, cano- canonical Joker story from the first Tim Burton Batman movie. Yeah, it's a red flag for me right off the bat. But uh, in this story, he ends up taking this sort of mind, taking some pills that basically cure him, quote unquote, of being the Joker. So he's back to being Jack Napier. And he begins organizing a poor neighborhood in Gotham to stand up to the Gotham Police Department for siding with Batman. And they cite all the stuff like, look, Batman causes $3 billion a year in property damage, <laughs> fighting crime. So, let's show your work. Okay, here's my work. Yeah. He's a menace. And then, <laughs> yeah, so he goes, he goes to the, you know, the sort of impoverished, you know, disenfranchised neighborhood of Gotham, organizes them to stand up to the GRPD. No, GCPD. There we go. Um GRPD is my local police department. I was going to say, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's some interesting ideas. I I mean, but that's such like a freshman philosophy 101 take on Batman. It's like, oh, Batman is just as bad as the villains. Like, well, of course he is. Of course he's destroying city blocks. It's also a made up story. (laughs) Gotham's not real. So I like the idea of there being a neighborhood in Gotham that doesn't isn't thrilled with Batman. You know, that's an interesting idea. You know, maybe Batman doesn't go to that neighborhood or maybe the cops don't go to that neighborhood. And there's there's a story there to be told. Um, The problem is Sean Murphy over explains that concept in every issue. So you have eight issues of him telling the same exact, you know, thing over and over again. And he he front loads it with a bunch of, you know, 
contemporary language. Like they use the term SJW a bunch in this book. They use oh the term boy, a bunch in this book. Uh, which yeah, it just there. It feels so heavy handed. I think it could have been a more nuanced way to tell the same story. It's also one of those Batman stories where the creator feels the need to include every one of the rogues gallery in the story. So there's part of the story. <laughs> I know my thoughts exactly. Paul, I just gotta this- say, like I'm sure I told you this before, but like. I was waiting for someone to bite this bullet, bite the bullet on this book before me, and you know, waiting for someone else to like walk into the fire and and come out unscathed sure. or whatever, uh, yeah. just so I could hear it from someone else. So uh, <laughs> I, I thank you because you're yeah. you're doing the Lord's work here. Um, <laughs> I knew this book was going to be probably pretty and dumb, and probably well, pretty yeah. dumb. So pretty dumb. Yeah, that's. I will Batman say, Batman and I, the Joker—they're not that different after all. Yes, we know, we know. There's that element. The, the problem is that he includes all the rogues gallery. So you have the Penguin, Riddler, Bane, all Mr. Those Freeze. But, is there at least yep, Mr. Freeze? The, the Mr. Freeze stuff is actually the most interesting part of the book. I, you know, there's a lot there with Mr. Freeze. The rest of the rogues gallery ends up being mind controlled by Harley Quinn, or oh, a, a fake. A f- don't get this—a fake Harley Quinn. So they actually don't have anything to do in the book. They just show up in the background a bunch. But that's that's kind of my bottom line with this book is that I'm willing to read a bad Batman comic as long as it looks nice, and this one looks really nice. You know, Sean Murphy is a fantastic artist, and there's there's a lot of stuff in this book where you know he'll draw. There's a bunch of different Batmobiles in the book, and he obviously draws the ones from the movies, the one from the animated series, and they look right. They're on model. They look great. You know, there's a lot of like little visual nuances and Easter eggs in the stuff in the book that I really like. But the story itself probably could have been done more streamlined. If this was four or five issues, it would have been perfect. At eight issues, it's kind of a slog. So I don't know. It, I think it sounds re- like it sounds like he was Murphy was basically looking for some sort of c- excuse or construct to more or less draw everything Batman. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, you see that a lot with Batman books where like a writer finally gets there. I mean, that's, that's what, um, you know, Long Halloween or Hush are. I mean, Hush is the best example of that. It's like, let's throw every possible idea I have about Batman into one book. Uh, it doesn't quite work always. Um, I will say of this one, if you can get it for free from the library, it's kind of worth checking out because it does look so lovely. But, I mean, don't expect a mind-blowing Batman story. So, Can I ask a very specific question about this book? Um, sure. Is, is there a point where Batman looks into a mirror and, and the Joker's on the other side of the mirror? Is this... <laughs> Does this happen? It doesn't quite get it doesn't quite get that heavy handed. Oh, thank God! It avoids that level of uh, you know, <laughs> ham fisted story on the nose. But, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So there's that. Uh, at least it was for at least I read it for free. I'll say that. But those are the books that we read. Let's talk about books that we're excited to read because comic books, of course, come out this Wednesday, December fifth. Uh, Kate, is there a book that you're most excited to read this week? So the. First issue of the final arc of The Wicked and the Divine comes out on Wednesday. And I just caught up by reading 1373 AD and issue 39. And I loved the special. I loved this special. (laughs) I haven't loved all of the specials. Um, But this one was very good and it filled in some backstory. So going into issue number 40, I'm really intrigued to find out basically how that becomes relevant, the, the new revelations become relevant to the, to the larger plotline. And there's been a whole lot of backstory being filled in in the last arc or two. So more and more we understand how their mythology works, the, the whole rebirth of the gods every however many years. So I'm anticipating that the conclusion, the concluding arc of the story is going to be pretty huge. I mean, this has been five years in the making, so. (laughs) Sure, yeah. (laughs) Um, The other thing that I'll say is that someday I'm going to have to go back and reread this entire series after it's been completed because there are so many details and so many subplots that I've been lost sometimes as to what they were talking about or what they were referencing because there's, there's so much of it. So I'm very excited to see this this crazy, wild, wonderful series wrap up. Um, and someday I'm going to do a complete reread. Yeah, this is definitely a book that's been on my you know radar to go back and read. I remember reading probably the first 10 or 12 issues of it and liking it. But maybe it's that thing where there's so much going on where 
reading it month to month didn't quite work. So now that's kind of wrapping up, I have an excuse finally, or I don't have an excuse anymore. I have to go back and reread the whole thing, you know? Yeah. What about you, Nick? What are you excited for this week? Uh, for me, it would have to be Ninja K14. This will be the last issue of Ninja K, which of course is um, the slightly shorter series following up on Matt Kint's two-year-plus run on Ninjak. Uh, this book is written by Christos Gage, uh, penciled by Roberto De La Torre, colors by Jose Villarubia, letters by Dave Lanfear. I recently read 11 and 12. I haven't yet gotten to my shop to pick up 13. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm really sad that this is kind of the last issue. Gage obviously didn't have as much time or room as Matt Kint did, I'd honestly say he only had about half, but he sort of really managed to avoid that tonal whiplash that you get when you sort of have a passing of the torch. Valiant's always been really careful to sort of provide some indicators that even when a book sort of stops and then resumes, that it takes a different tonal shift, or frequently they even sort of make subtle changes even to the title of the book. Like, I think Archer and Armstrong, when it came back, and I know this is goofy and stupid, but it was sort of a little subtle indicator when it when it got rebooted, it became Archer ampersand Armstrong, in the same way that Ninjack became Ninja K, which was, was also sort of a tip to the idea, a tip of the hat to the idea that he was one in a long succession of these ninjas working for MI6. So I thought that was kind of interesting. What I really liked about Gage's run up to this point was that you don't find many writers who sort of are basically taking on a fill-in role of sorts or a follow-up role of sorts that are really eager to engage in a, in a broader canon discussion. They sort of are a little bit tepid or nervous about that, and they tend to exist within their own self-contained universe or, or keep things very insular or one-shot-ish or, or whatnot. And yet, uh, Gage just steps right in, and he just interacts with with Harbinger Wars 2, Armor Hunters from a couple years back, Eternal Warrior's absence over the last couple years, and yes, maybe a lot of credit needs to be given here to Valiant's editors, and and they probably had a large uh, part in this as well, but Gage was willing to uh, engage in that, and and I, I I'm 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 pretty impressed with it, honestly. It's a book that really is meant for those that are more privy to what the last couple years of Valiant titles have been about. And and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to be elitist here and say, like, oh, this is for the hardcore Valiant fans, but merely to say that it's a nice alternative from the current market that's all about, oh, new number one, great jumping on point, start the book here, you know, begin this now, even though a lot of those points are just frequently disingenuous all the time. So it'll be the last issue. Uh, he's going after uh, his former teammate uh, slash Unity teammate slash former lover Livewire who was in trouble because of what happened in Harbinger Wars 2, and I, I'm not really going to talk about that at length because I don't want to spoil that. So uh, it's the end of a book, and it's just uh, another moment where I won't take the opportunity, but just to say that uh, if I could jump on the soapbox and say that this is like part of the DMG acquisition Nick White Valiant conspiracy theory. I I think it I think it is, but we'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you want to know more about that, hit up Nick. Ask him about yeah. the conspiracy theory. I'm sure. Put on your tinfoil hat and uh, <laughs> Nick White. So exactly. So. Exactly. What about you, Paul? <laughs> um, this is one of those weeks where a bunch of my favorite books are coming out. You know, Ooh, the same week. The way that tough happens. Choices. So it's very tough to pick one. Exactly. You got the new Immortal Hulk coming out. You got a uh, new issue of Border Town. You got the second issue of. Grant Morrison's Green Lantern coming out, but I decided to pick a number one book because I like to pick a new number one when I do this. Yeah. My pick is Martian Manhunter number one, the new ongoing series about everyone's favorite Martian Manhunter, John Jones. Um, this is written by Steve Orlando with art by Riley Rosmo, and ooh, I'm ooh, a, ooh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm a sucker for Martian Manhunter to begin with. He's one of my favorite supporting characters. I'm always on the fence of whether or not he really needs an ongoing series, but I've, I've yeah. liked the past couple ones that they've done. I really like the one that um, Al Ewing did. Was it Al? You know, it was Rob Williams. The one that Rob Williams did a couple years ago. I always get them confused for yep. some reason. But the, the one that the Rob DCU, Williams did. The um, DCU run. Yep. 
Yep, by Rob Williams. That was quite good. Although it it really focused on the strangeness of Martian Manhunter, you know. Yeah, that's right. This book, this book, well, of course, is being marketed as yet another book that'll change everything we know about John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. <laughs> Based on what I've read, it feels like Orlando and Rosmo are going to focus more on the idea of John Jones, his alter ego as a detective, which I always thought was the most interesting part of the character. You have this Martian who comes to Earth. And in order to fit in, becomes a detective and uses his supernatural abilities to do detective work. That's a very interesting take on the whole, you know, superhero alter ego dynamic. So the fact that they're kind of focusing on John Jones as a detective, as a beat cop, you know, doing detective work, that's kind of interesting to me. Um, And I really like the idea of putting artists that have sort of unconventional or highly stylized art styles on superhero books. So the idea of Riley Rossmo doing a weekly superhero or monthly superhero book is really, really exciting. I think it's going to be great, especially a character like the Martian Manhunter, who has such a distinct, you know, iconic look to have someone do a little different take on that could be really interesting. And it it does honestly feel like DC is less willing to entertain the idea of people breaking away from house style more than Marvel. So it is nice when it comes along. So, well, you know, I, I. I question that because I just read the most recent issue of Justice League and that had, it wasn't the whole issue, but it did have pages by Fraser Irving, who is one oh, of the yeah. most stylized, you know, unique artists out there. So having a person like that do, you know, maybe a third of the issue, but still having him do a Justice League issue is, that's pretty amazing. You know, that's not what people yeah. expect when they pick up an issue of Justice League. So it, it does seem I like think, DC recently has made some steps away from... From the new 52's edicts, if you will. Exactly. Exactly. No, I mean, that's definitely something I've enjoyed seeing as unconventional artists on superhero titles on DC. So, yeah. If only because you know there are some people out there who are very furious. Who, yeah, who probably don't want to see Fraser Irving drawing, you know, Superman anytime soon. Look at Riley (laughs) Rossmo and they head immediately to the uh, um, message boards. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm excited for that book, you know, in addition to all the other awesome books coming out this week I mentioned. So... Yeah, that's where we're at with that. So um, we will take a short break and then come back for our main topic, which is religious comics or maybe religion in comics. We'll see where the discussion goes. For our main topic of this week's episode, we decided to tackle a pretty major you know, discussion point, and that is religion. Uh, religion in comics, comics that are religious, comic book characters that are religious, and how those things fit together. Is there room for religion in comics? I think we say, I think we'll agree that there is, because we're talking religious in pretty broad terms here. We're talking about the way that a character uh, expresses themselves through their faith, or a way that a creator expresses their faith through their work, or comic books that are commenting on religious topics. There's a lot to discuss here. So we're going to probably just scratch the surface, but I think there are a couple of different angles we could take. So I'm just going to open the floor to uh, Kate and Nick here and see if they have a, a f- topic that jumps off the top of their head if they want to talk about regarding religion in comics. So the first thing that comes to mind when you say religion in comics is Will Eisner's A Contract with God, because it yes, was one of the, yes. the early great graphic novels i feel like and it's all about go ahead i was gonna say i think that's the the term graphic novel comes from that i think will eisner coined that term to describe that book because it clearly wasn't you know a a comic book that was sold on the newsstand i think he came up with the literal term graphic novel when he was pitching that book and it is probably the first example of that term being used to sell a comic book yeah yeah it was printed in 1978 um and i think that the the graphic novel phrase dates to around there so yeah you're i'm sure you're right um this story is about a jewish man and his relationship with god he basically writes a contract um which he holds himself to in relation to his promises to god early on in the book but so much bad stuff (laughs) happens to this guy that Mm -hmm. it's it's about his relationship with religion so that's yeah. And speaking of, you know, re- creators that expressing their faith through books, I think that really is a almost autobiographical or at least a ter- a, something Will Eisner is very passionate about explaining his Jewish faith through that book. I mean, it's a really fantastic book. 
And I'm glad you brought it up because it didn't even cross my mind when I was thinking, when I was thinking about this topic. Yeah, it's it's very heavy to read. I mean, it's a, it's a very <laughs> yes. good book. I do recommend it. But man, that was an intense afternoon <laughs> yes. for me. <laughs> yeah, and Will Eister, I mean, his artwork is just, again, I think it's a very passionate topic for him because he expresses the 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 what the experience that that man has and in such amazing graphic detail it's not that many like even words in the book it just visually it's so stunning and expresses itself almost purely visually at times Mm -hmm. yeah and it talks about some of the it's not just focused on this one character there is some other stories about his this character's community and things like the basically the summer camp that all the families go to um that's the story that stuck with me the most is about um these people meeting other people looking for their future spouses and trying to look more maybe um well off than they really are and I found that I think in comics, the religion of the characters has more to do with the communities and how they interact with one another than it really does about um, like seeing them in church or talking to God as it does happen in this particular book. Yeah. I think that's, that's interesting. So we talk about religious characters, um, you know, it becomes part of the character's background. So you don't expect to read a character a story where you see you know nightcrawler going to church every sunday but his catholic faith you know expresses itself in the way he acts among other people so it becomes a part of the character's makeup as opposed to you know sort of a a proselyte the creator themselves proselytizing you know to the reader you know so i I have i think we all have lists in the notes here of religious characters maybe kind of do that right now i think characters like nightcrawler um and uh, Jean-Paul Valley, you know, Azrael being Catholic, yeah, that is a yeah. big part of their character. Uh, ben Grimm is canonically Jewish. Um, a lot of the, Jew- actually a lot of Marvel characters are because I think Jack Kirby put himself in the characters that way. And then I, I have Simon Boz, the Green Lantern is Muslim, you know. So these are, I think those are elements of the character's background that make them more interesting and more well-rounded because we, you know, we know in our everyday lives people that have those those faiths and express them through their everyday actions. Yeah, I was really surprised. I guess I shouldn't have been. But how many of the early comic book creators were Jewish? And I found a couple of articles um, stating basically how they communicated that through their work and then possibly why so many of the early creators were Jewish. And if I can find it in my notes, um, there was a article called Jews in Comic Books by Ari Kaplan. And it basically got into how when the comic books really started getting going back in I think the 30s there was there wasn't a whole lot of places for Jewish people in society because they were so um, judged against basically so when comic books started getting big as an as a um, industry they were looking for people that would work for almost nothing and that included a lot of Jewish people so it ended up becoming a very Jewish um, industry at first yeah Mm -hmm. so I thought that that was really interesting and kind of upsetting (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's i think it it, that is interesting because i think that their their faith or their ideas become ingrained with the superhero medium i mean i you think about superman superman is a religious character that is the story of moses literally you know the story of the superman coming to earth his parents putting him in a basket that's a spaceship setting him down the river you know across space him landing on earth being taken in by a kindly couple i mean that is a messianic story inherently and right I think yeah. you can never take that away from it you know it's always going to be there part of the character mm-hmm. and i think what's kind of interesting about that is something i i noticed in an article um about a book called up up and oy vey by Rabbi Simcha Weinstein. Uh, I'm, there's always an opportunity for me to ruin a name, so that's probably it for today. Uh, and he pointed out that the Superman origin mirrored the situation for many Jews in the 30s, a.k.a. many children being sent away uh, to live abroad as the situation in Germany deteriorated. And I thought that was something that was kind of interesting. I'd never really made that... I mean, it seems so obvious, but I'd never made that connection of, oh, geez, that's exactly what was going on at I the think time. It's, so. I think it's really paved the way for comics to be the diverse place that it is, at least today. I think that it went through yeah. a rough period a couple of decades ago, possibly. I wasn't around then. so. <laughs> 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 um, but 
uh, like you have the X-Men, which focuses on, on people that are outcast by society for a large, a large part of the story. And then, yeah, I think that that's possibly where, well, that is where that comes from. Um, because of the people that created them. Right. Right. Just the cultural, um, message behind that again with the community though uh, yeah, yeah that's in, that's interesting I, I i think the x-men obviously you have magneto being the most notable you know character there who you know due to his faith experienced you know extreme trauma going through the holocaust and that becomes part of the character's story and i think that's something that was added to his origin later on i mean once not there in the original originally he was just sort of a, a bad guy generic bad guy but the character becomes so much more interesting in relation to his other you know the other characters because of that added background that they gave him later on. Um, I'm always interested to see deities when they're actually a character in the comics, which I've never seen anybody actually put like the Christian God in a comic, <laughs> but sure. I just yeah. read animal man um, and the red gods were active side characters. Like I thought it was really interesting that you have these gods and the idea is that the gods determine what happens in the world but when you're actually in the scene with animal man the gods are just telling him what should should or shouldn't happen but aren't necessarily actually doing anything themselves and i found that that was a very similar thing to what happened with the gods that i saw in the early issues of the buffy um season eight in nine comics with willow um i'm super out of date with that (laughs) with that series um but again it was just the gods telling willow you know what should or shouldn't happen or the um you know they're sort of like influencing the pieces of the world the how the pieces move such as willow um but they're not actually like causing anything major to happen from what i recall so i think that it's fascinating that people will in- include these fictional deities in their comics, but it's almost like a like a commentary on how they view um, you know the the real life gods because I mean we don't have people um, or deities coming down to earth and you know changing things, but we do have you know um, priests, nuns, people, um, ministers rabbis yes yeah well i think what's always interesting in those situations is that comic book creators will set up these situations where you have something that's uh clearly a a a religious manifestation or or whatnot and then for me the question becomes like how does this change and shape the everyday person's worldviews and or religious perspective and the book Mm -hmm. is like no no we're we're not we're not going to tackle that nick what do you think this is you know are you serious (laughs) like we are not opening up that box of you know that can of worms um but you yeah. do you do see some interesting approaches. I've always found uh, Neil Neil Gaiman's uh, Sandman to yeah. to mm-hmm. have some very interesting ideas about how uh, how to tackle the uh, the idea of religion and how to attempt to. Gosh, and I read this so long ago, um, but attempt to <laughs> create an interweaving narrative in which everything kind of actually falls in together because they're all stories, if I remember. I think it's Season of Mists. God, I'm going to be so wrong on this. Where uh, Lucifer decides he doesn't want to rule hell anymore. I've got this part right. And he basically <laughs> says, I'm outie. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gone. And then everybody else shows up and sort of, not really argues, but attempts to sort out who's going to be in charge of hell now. Uh, and you have all these different de- deities that show up. And um, it was interesting. Um, definitely one of the best Sandman stories I enjoyed, even though I clearly can't remember most of it. It was a long time ago, okay? And some volumes of that book are weird. Um, Like, honestly, like, Sandman, it's like, people are going to be so mad when I say this, but it's like, read volumes, like, 1 through 3, and then read volumes, like, 9 through 11 or whatever. The in-between is weird. Um, Anyway... Oh, you anyway. only want the you only want the volumes with Morpheus. Yeah, a little, maybe. Um, <laughs> anyway, 
So (laughs) I I, I think that stuff like that is interesting. And another thing that I've always been kind of fascinated with, and you see a little bit, is um, kind of the interaction between sacred and secular culture. And with comic books, you see this a lot, certainly throughout the, the decades that comics have been around. Uh, there really hasn't been a shortage of uh, religious commentary on comics themselves. Certainly, there were times when when they were seen as you know the scourge of the earth you know, to religious mm-hmm. organizations who, you know, in some ways this is I think how you ended up with the comics code. I might just be really no, blanket statementing this here, but uh, that's um, exactly right. Yeah. yeah, but certainly they saw it as an evil and. Mm-hmm. Which, which of course is so weird because here are comic books essentially retelling the stories you want children to hear, but they're not going to hear it from you, or they're not going to absorb it, or they probably won't. And yet here are these other people that are more or less adapting, modifying, changing, but nonetheless telling your tales and to that to to you they're the the you know they're the the bad guys and so you always have this playing you have these two groups of secular and sacred culture you know playing off of each other so moses might become superman and then the the religious groups see that and they go well we 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 want our version of that and so you get like bible man right (laughs) so you have this constant what is bible man (laughs) it's exactly what it sounds like it's basically the people that make things like Veggie Tales decided that they wanted their Batman, Superman, and you got Bible Man, basically. <laughs> if that right. makes sense. Do you mention the comics it's... code too? Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. Oh, okay. uh, Paul, do you um, want to like touch on that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, so basically, like the thirty-second version, basically. Right. <laughs> so in the mid '50s, um, a lot of religious thinkers, or you know. Uh, preachers and parent groups said that comic books caused juvenile delinquency. So there was a Senate hearing on this very topic, and it was decided by the comic book publishers, rather than going through some uh, government regulation of comic books, they would get together and create a comics book code, self-regulated group. It was called the Comics Code Authority. And basically from the 1950s up until the late 90s, Every book that DC or Marvel put out had a little stamp on it that said approved by the Comics Code Authority, and it meant they couldn't put things like nudity, um, you know, witchcraft. Certain uh, depictions of violence, yeah. Yeah, that was all sort of banned, and it got much looser as the decades went on, but for a long time, comic books were highly sanitized by this group called the Comics Code. So that's what that is. It's a really interesting topic in comic books history, and I think that's... I'm glad that it's gone because it made comic books a lot more interesting, you know, but I, I think the reason I, that for one, had... await the return of the comic. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I <laughs> can't clean wait. This stuff no. up. Com- I don't know if you heard, Nick, but comics aren't just for kids anymore. Uh, yeah. but... <laughs> oh, no, I haven't. <laughs> this is new. <laughs> no, but I think I, I think one thing is really interesting to me. The most fascinating thing about this topic with comics and religion is how the DC and Marvel universes incorporate spiritual and you know, supernatural stuff into their cosmologies. You know, oh yeah. Why would there? I mean, why would you really need to have a character that is God if Superman exists? Like, or how does that make sense? Like, how would the people in Metropolis still be religious, knowing that these supernatural beings are, are real? You know, quote unquote, in their world. So I've always liked the idea, and I, one of my favorite things is the fact that they gave Krypton its own religion, you know, so Superman and all of Kryptonians had a religion called Rao. They worshipped the sun god Rao, so this, I was like that in, like, Silver Age comics where Superman would exclaim, exclaim oh, my Rao, or by the great Rao. It's like, <laughs> oh, he has his own god that he worshipped as well, you know. This fascinating idea that, of course, a fictional universe would have his own fictional religion is too. I've always loved that idea. I was, was going to say, in addition to that, you have... The, the way the universes have incorporated the real, you know, uh, religion into their, their, their cosmologies where you have, there's so many analogs to Satan in Marvel comics. You have Mephisto, oh, God, son yes. of Satan. There's so many different takes on that. And then DC, you have the demon who's literally a demon. You have the specter who's actually the, the actual spirit of God's vengeance. So right. God exists in the DC universe and he manifests himself through the Phantom specter. stranger. <laughs> Phantom Stranger, who, I mean, there's a couple of different origin stories, but one of them is that he's actually Judas, you know. Um, 
You have Zuriel from Graham Morrison's Justice League run, who's actually an angel that fell from heaven. So it's like heaven and hell actually do exist in the Marvel and DC universes. They're just highly, you know, they're very different the way I think we think about them day to day, but they're there in those universes in a, in a different sense. You know, I've always kind of liked that idea that they still held on to that stuff. Yeah, it's 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 one of those topics that it, when you sort of like stop and try to really uh, sort it out as to like, well, if this exists and that exists and this person's real, then like, wouldn't that change what people think? And it's like, don't 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 ask those questions. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, not in this yeah. book at least. Um, <laughs> One well, of the things that I find... Oh, go ahead, Kate. I was just going to say, I mean, like, our our society today, in, in the U.S. at least, is very, like, technology-heavy, and that has changed our society in the way that it functions a whole lot, but it hasn't right. changed yeah. our um, emphasis on a religion in society. We still <laughs> have large communities of people with different faiths. So, I mean, I feel like it's kind of similar where just because yeah. something new comes along that is large and powerful and, and life-changing, it doesn't mean that our um, sense of like something bigger um, goes away. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in some sense, I like the way that these fictional universes really are mirror images of our own. They really do reflect, you know, our contemporary worldviews in some sense or the way we understand the world. It's still there in this highly fictionalized universe. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, one thing that I will say that I, I find uh, religion and comics, you know, have quite in common, and this is something uh, I studied a good amount back when I was getting my religious studies degree years and years ago, um, alongside my my English degree, was um, eschatology, which is which is a branch of theology that's I mean, according to, we'll go with the Oxford English Dictionary definition, which is something that's, con- it's a branch which is concerned with the death, judgment, and final destiny destiny of the soul and humankind. And obviously, when you look at comic books like East of West or Sixth Gun, or any of these books that want to talk about bringing about the apocalypse or what the apocalypse entails or, um, or rapture or things like this, uh, you know, these are these are questions that the uh, sacred, sacred and secular communities have sort of attempted to. You know, they've weighed in on for years now. So, mm-hmm. um, and comic books are no different. Comic books. I mean, uh, maybe it's a real interesting uh, statement on our times, and I don't think it's an accident that um, American, not even American, world culture is obsessed with apocalyptic narratives right now. That's not an accident. <laughs> That's our subconscious. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, hasn't that always been the case? I mean, you have the story of... Oh, yeah, sure. The end times are near. And the end times are near. The end times are near. Yeah. 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 And I think that's... Again, that's one of those things that anyone that's a creative person is going to express their thoughts about that through their artworks, which is why you have so many stories about that in every medium. I think what's interesting about comics is that you gives you a play it gives you a space where you can tell a story where the universe is completely destroyed and then you have the way for it to get rebuilt. You know what I mean? You can run through every scenario right. of the world ending over and over and over again. You know, every crisis is the world just being destroyed and being rebuilt, you know? And I like that idea that that is a way the creators are expressing their thoughts about these religious or spiritual topics. You know, I think of the interview with Jack Kirby that I always recommend people is he talks about him creating Galactus. And he says, you know, the Silver Surfer was a fallen angel. Galactus was a god because he realized he couldn't just tell stories about gangsters anymore. He had to think bigger. And the way he thought bigger was to go to his faith or go to the Bible and to pull out these stories and these concepts. That's where you get Galactus, you know, uh, Silver Surfer, all of the new gods. It means in the name itself, the new gods was his attempt to tell a sort of mythological religious story in a contemporary setting. So the fact that you have these recurring stories about the end of the world or about religion, that's because that's what the creators are interested in. That's how they're going to express it through their comics. Right? Totally. Totally. I feel like we can't talk about religion and comics without talking about Wicked and the Divine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I just talked about Wicked and the Divine like 10 minutes ago, but uh, (laughs) that has to do with your, your idea of the, um, like mortality also every two years the gods um or 
rather the gods are reborn every couple of decades and then they only have two years to live and then they die again <laughs> right and right. then the circle yeah. the circle <laughs> continues or the cycle continues um man there's there's so much to say about this i don't really know where to start <laughs> um here again we have the comment the the characters are gods they've got god powers but they're they're the characters in the book and they are on earth affecting people but it talks too about the the comparison between divinity and celebrity and how these gods are more celebrities rather than being planet changing like earthquake earthquake causing gods um right and well yeah yeah yeah. go ahead I was going to say, I mean, it just reminds me of the, you know, the infamous John Lennon quote, how the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. And that's, I think any sort of contemporary discussion about celebrity is going to say like celebrities are in some sense, a new form of religion, a new pantheon of gods in a sense, you know? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Makes me think of the one issue of um, Grant Morrison's multiversity, the universe where it's just celebrity obsessed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that one? I think Ben Oliver drew it. I think Laura's story, Laura is the, the main character, sort of, sort of, <laughs> question mark, and Wicked and Divine, um, especially in the first arc of the, of, of the series, and she is kind of uninformed about the depth of, of how far the Pantheon goes and all the backstory and such, as are the readers, which is, you know, the story, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But it's really interesting to see how she she becomes more informed and more things um, start start happening, and she sees how the gods' actions affect the people around them um, and the kind of the local communities around them that, that go to their parties and such, which has kind of fallen off in the later issues. I don't know where I was going with this. <laughs> well, no, I I do. What I remember from reading that book again, I only read a little bit of it, but I did like the idea of that. The idea of the there's a pantheon of gods, you know, this idea that it kind of borrows from every religion, major or not, to kind of make that that pantheon work. And I, I think that's an interesting idea because it kind of draws all these different strains or threads and mythologies together, you know, in one story, you know, which I think a lot of kind of what we're talking about now is the idea of like bringing in your personal faith or maybe an idea about faith you have and drawing it into a larger context. You know, I, I think that that book does that really well, the mm-hmm. little bit I've read. Similar to, you know, like, again, Jack Kirby, him, his idea of uh, Asgard and Thor and the Norse religion is very different from the actual Norse mythology. But I like the idea is like, here's these great stories I can retell, you know, with the superhero connotation that he does. You know, that sort of look at religion through the, through the lens of a superhero story in a sense. So I've always liked that kind of stuff. Um. Are there particular stories, maybe, or uh, issues that we can oh, maybe yes. recommend to people? Okay, there we go. <laughs> I know God, Nick's got a list Godzilla here, so. in hell, if you want, oh, probably. <laughs> I'm half joking, but like, <laughs> if you ever wanted to see basically Dante's Inferno meets um, Godzilla, uh, it exists. It's a real thing. <laughs> Uh, yes, it's yes. like five issues. Um, mega bonus first issues drawn by James Stokoe, who is amazing. Uh, and yeah, it's it's a when you read the behind the scenes r- work that went into it, like these artists, these writers were like very serious about going back and reading the you know, Dante's Inferno and the original texts and reinterpreting things and uh, like. There was a real cynical temptation to assume that it was a super goofy idea, and it is, but (laughs) they approached it with such seriousness that uh, it gains this level of respect that I, I didn't anticipate that it would have. Like, holy cow, like, who pitched this? Who approved this? And then... Wow, what an end product. So that that's a, a really interesting mashup. If you wanted something like that, that would be one that I would definitely embrace. Um, another one that easily comes to mind would be like Eternal Warrior. Um, has a lot of interesting questions about um, death and mortality. 
um, and what it means to be like this undying figure and sort of what sort of mm-hmm. ramifications that can have um, from like a world building perspective. Valiant sort of has that weird approach that you also see in like d- at least DC because I know DC well enough where you have uh, spirits and 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 sort of a, an afterlife place in the sh- oh god what is it called the dead zone I think. <laughs> Yeah. So you have all these interesting s- semi-religious ideas going around, um, but no one's really <laughs> attempting to um, juxtapose that alongside our ideas and our concepts of 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 a uh, um, you know modern religion. So yeah, yeah. Hmm. Kate, do you have any uh, recommendations? Yeah, I mentioned a contract with God earlier, and I. Yeah. I just have to say that I read this maybe a year ago and it has stuck with me and I think about this a lot <laughs> and yeah. I could mention it way more often on the show than I than I do. <laughs> so if you get the chance, if it's at, the, at your library, if it's on a on a sale sometime, I would I would grab it and I do recommend even if it takes you a while um, mm-hmm. to to read that. Yeah, that's a very good book. That, that gets a recommendation for me as well. It's been years since I read it. I should revisit that, but. Um what I think is interesting, um, I've noticed some religious context in some recent Tom King comics. I think the last issue of the last issue of Mister Miracle was it felt like very a very ponderous religiously themed issue, um, and also he did that run on the, I think it was like a three issue little story in the Batman run with a story with um, uh, Doctor Freeze on trial and Bruce Wayne is on the jury. That brings up right. a lot of religious topics, and I think a lot of readers assumed that Tom King was saying Batman is an atheist, and he said that's not the point. I wasn't crazy about that story overall, but I think there's some interesting ideas there, and I, I, I like the ambiguity that Tom King in, introduces. Does Batman have faith, and if so, what would it be? So that's an interesting story. Um, but my highest recommendation, obviously, for a religious comic is the Fantastic Four story Hereafter, uh, it's from issues 509 to 511, so it's going back a ways with the Fantastic Four. But it's written by Mark Wade, art by Mike Moringo, I think, did the art on that one. But the story is that uh, Ben Grimm died, and Mr. Fantastic finds out a way to go to heaven to retrieve his soul. So I love the idea of the Fantastic Four, like, oh, we can scientifically figure out a way to go to heaven. That's the thing that can happen. So they go to heaven, <laughs> and they meet God, or the creator, who's Jack Kirby. Like, it's, it's actually <laughs> Jack Kirby sitting at a drawing board, and he gives this beautiful speech about how he gave all, his, all of his creatures free will to choose, write their own stories. It's a really beautiful story. And it really, I think it was Mark Wade's tribute to Jack Kirby after he passed away, so... If you're talking about religion and comics, of course I'm going to talk about Jack Kirby so or any topic in comics. So I'd highly recommend that story if you haven't read it. It's really, really quite good. So uh, that, before we wrap up... Oh, oh go, go ahead, Nick. I was going to say, that reminds me a lot of... There's a TMNT story that's basically a tribute to Jack Kirby. Uh, and he's... Gosh, I want to say he's he's this artist who has like a magical pencil, and he has he's able to like construct worlds just uh, at a whim, you know, with his notebook and this magical pencil. And yeah, it's your 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 narrative there. Just it it simply just brought this one to mind, and and it's it's interesting because again, you have Kirby in this sort of magical, mystical creator, you know, creator role basically, which is you know that's essentially what a god is. So. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. It, it, draw, it draws an interesting parallel between, you know, uh, free will versus destined uh, predeterminism, which is obviously a religious topic, and oh, the sure. idea of being a creator, you creating your own life, being an artist in your own life. There's a lot to discuss there. There might be a, a second follow-up episode where you can dive deeper into that. So, yeah. Um, before we wrap up, does anybody have any other uh, topics or suggestions we want to throw out real quickly? Uh, nothing. I'll nothing. take that as a no. So. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're listening, if you have any recommendations or any other ideas about this topic, again, I think we just scratched the surface here. So please reach out to us and let us know what your favorite relig- religious comics are or any other uh, things relating to this topic. So um, to do so, you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Nick at Death Star Plans. You can follow Kate at Kate L. 
Fear, is that right? I can never remember yep. your Twitter handle. Okay. Uh, find me at Ohi Polly, and of course find the show at IRCB Podcast. We retweet polls and stuff all the time over there. I think a recent poll was how many books you bought over Black Friday weekend. Um, I don't know what the current topic is, but I'm sure Mike will have something interesting for us to ponder over on Twitter. We would also encourage you to go ahead and check out our Goodreads group. We have weekly threads all the time about what books you've read or uh, questions about um, what book we should nominate for our next book of the month. Uh, Lately, I've seen a lot of just really friendly, helpful uh, people on there. Just uh, when anybody has a question about any book or what should I read next or what did you think about this? Just people are receptive and, and interested uh, a really great community. It's it's fantastic over there. If you're not a member, I, I would say go check it out. Also, go ahead and head on over to ircbpodcast.com. We have a pronunciation guide for the names that I continually botch on this show week in and week out. Uh, and if you're not interested in seeing my mistakes corrected, we also have a merch store. <laughs> we have shirts. We have stickers. Uh, I think zines are available for purchase. So yep. that's right. Head on also over. Also free and digital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, please rate and tell your friends about the show. If you haven't le- left a written review someplace, please do. It helps us and makes the show more awesome. Um, you can email the show at ircb at destroythesibe.org. And you can also subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash ircbpodcast for exclusive audio, early access, and com- some cool stuff cool stuff like infinity shred they're the best and they do the music for our show so thanks to them uh xander edits the show he's a top tier wizard as well Um, i want to thank kate and nick for joining me for this topic and thank you for listening and until next time be good to others and enjoy comics